hello everybody. Welcome to today's episode of Elixir Mix. I am Sophie Benedetto, and I am joined by some of our still relatively new panelists. We have Lars Wickman. Hey. Did I say your last name right? Close enough. Close enough. Okay, cool. Uh, we have Alex Kutmos. Howdy, howdy. Hey, Alex. And we have Stephen Nunez. Oh, hello. Hey, and we are very excited to welcome today's guest, Chris Dose. I said that right, right? Yes, that's correct. Hello, and thanks for having me. Awesome. Welcome. So, uh, Chris, we're super happy to have you. Do you want to kick us off by introducing yourself? Uh, Yeah, well, uh, I've been um, a software engineer for a little while now. Uh, I was, I had to, you know, check back at my LinkedIn to see how far back it actually goes. Uh, looks like I've been doing this for about 13 years now. Uh, I started out down in, uh, Louisiana, uh, at LSU. Um, I did some, I taught workshops there as a student, uh, in, uh, software, uh, primarily things like HTML and CSS and JavaScript, but you know, a little bit of PHP as well. That was my first language. Um, and, uh, from there, uh, I got some jobs in, uh, in Louisiana, but decided that that wasn't the place to really, uh, propel the career I wanted. So I moved to San Francisco and, uh, got a job with Peak, um, as a software engineer there, um, and have been with Peak, uh, since then for about uh, a little over six and a half years. Um, and at Peak is where I uh, got into Elixir and uh, started learning that. Your app is slow, and you probably don't even know it. Maybe it's fine in most places, but then the customer loads the page up, that one page, and after a couple of seconds, their attention disappears into Twitter and never comes back. The reality is there are performance issues in your app, and they're affecting your customer experience. What you need to do is hook up your app to Scout APM and let it start telling you where the slowdowns are happening. It makes it really easy. It tells you how slow things are and what the problem is, like N plus one queries or memory bloat. It's also built for developers, so it makes it really easy to identify where the fix needs to go. I've hooked it up to some of my apps and I saw what I needed to fix in a couple of minutes. Try it today for free and they'll donate $5 to the open source project of your choice. Just go to scoutapm.com slash devchat and then deploy it to your app. Once you do that, they'll donate the five bucks. That's scoutapm.com slash devchat. Super cool. I, I hadn't heard of Peak just in terms of it being uh, a company that is using Elixir. So it's always exciting to add a new entry to like my mental list of companies that are using Elixir in production. Were they working with Elixir before you got there? Uh, no, uh, we, um, we were using... Ruby primarily uh, before uh, before I got there and why, when I got there. Uh, so for the first uh, two years while I was there, we were primarily writing in Ruby, kind of going in uh, service oriented architecture direction. Um, and then, and I wasn't aware of Elixir actually. Um, and we 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 hired a new engineer who was a big proponent of Elixir, uh, uh, you know, like an evangelist, and said, "Hey, you should really check this out." Um, and I did, and he completely converted me. So I became an evangelist for Elixir as well. And I suggested that we start exploring it for, uh, for future services. Since we were going in a service-oriented architecture direction, we could you know, experiment with smaller services and say, hey, does this work? Um, and thankfully it did. And we kind of got everybody on board with that. And, uh, and we use uh, Elixir now primarily, even though we've got 
plenty of legacy uh, systems around that are still in Ruby. Uh, we don't tend to build new things in Ruby. We, we build all of our new stuff in Elixir. How did you find the process of either hiring Elixir engineers or ramping up uh, you know, Ruby developers and, and getting them uh, familiar with uh, Elixir and the Beam? I don't know, how did that process kind of go? Uh, well, thankfully, I guess we're, we're a pretty small uh, engineering team. So uh, the, the ramp up process for the existing engineers on Ruby was, was pretty, pretty easy for the, for the engineers that we had. We, you know, like we've got some smart people, they just kind of got it, you know, and we, we all kind of learned together, you know, I mean, we were all new to it. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that, that worked out pretty well. As far as, um, hiring, uh, hiring new Elixir engineers, it definitely is harder. Uh, the pool is, is much smaller, but we, we've always been open to, you know, hiring anybody from any, uh, programming background, as long as they're interested and willing to, uh, learn Elixir. Like we, you know, we're, we're perfectly happy to have, you know, people that, want to learn Elixir, but haven't had an opportunity yet, uh, you know, in a, in a professional setting to, uh, to use Elixir. So, you know, we were looking for people like that. Uh, unfortunately, of course, the, the, the recent pandemic and stuff has drastically slowed us down and, uh, we've been on a hiring freeze ever since then. So that's kind of, that's kind of been on hold. I'm always really curious about sort of teams that transition into Elixir. So where I'm at now, um, we, same kind of story predominantly went from like Ruby rails background to uh, some psychopath came in and convinced everyone to go and look at this elixir thing. It was me. What was that again? I don't, I forget. It's a, oh, okay. I, I, yeah. Um, so we started building more and more apps of it with it. And then it's kind of like interesting because the journey is not just like, Hey, there's pipes here in gen servers. It's kind of like trying to figure out what are the learning materials you need to get in front of the team? How do you sort of organize it? Like we have some smart people too, but we also realize that if you don't, if you're not careful about like uh, how to convert an OO mindset to a functional mindset, you wind up with some really gnarly looking code. Did you guys run into that at all? And if so, what resources did you sort of use to uh, books, guidance, any sort of like uh, general tips? Um, well, yes, definitely. The early experiments in Elixir were definitely a little weird. Um, especially since we tried to kind of out the gate, try some, uh, try some funny business that like would have been a lot harder to do in Ruby, but we're like, but we're using Elixir now we can do this. Um, and those kinds of things turn out to be bad ideas in the long run. Uh, but, um, you know, just like as an example, we had, uh, uh, we had one of these integrations that we were building where we needed to like the, the. External API we were integrating with was asynchronous in some places, uh, but our API is synchronous. So, you know, okay, fine. So why don't we just have, you know, a little layer here where the internal synchronous request, HTTP request comes in, we spawn up a gen server that holds on to that HTTP request and then does the async actions with the external API. And then whenever that async action is done, then we can release the response uh, to the, uh, you know, to the HTTP client there. And uh, yeah, it's, it's funky um, and, you know, ended up just being really hard to debug and uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. <laughs> I feel like, uh, are as, you me? I think we did that same thing in almost, one of our earlier, yeah. I'm like, maybe not exactly the same, but very much a situation where you have like an incoming web request and then you're just doing something kind of overly complex with gen servers and, you know, you're blocking the response until 15 different things uh, resolve. And yeah, I think the idea of it being extremely hard to debug was absolutely 
uh, yeah, resonates. That is sort of interesting that because Elixir gives you those tools to do it, like you can be like, oh, I can kind of imagine how like a set of persistent servers running in like the background can hit. This is perfect. And then, then it hurts, hurts, hurts so bad. Uh, I think that's, that's part of learning, but I think, um, I think worth exploring because I think it helps you understand sort of like the edges of, you know, what these tools can do for you. One thing that I know I was uh, excited to ask you about, Chris, is it looks like Peak at Peak, you guys have one or two or a couple different Elixir open source libraries that you maintain. And I think it's really exciting not only to see another company using Elixir in production, but actually supporting and giving back to the Elixir community in that way. So I would love to hear a little bit about the open source libraries that you guys developed. What did they do? Why did you build them? What's it like to maintain them, you know, as you use them in production? Yeah, um, I am also excited about being uh, given the opportunity to develop and maintain these open source uh, libraries. Thankfully, like Peak is very open to that idea of, you know, giving back to the community um, and so it was, it was largely my initiative to, um, to, to carve out some of the important bits or, you know, some of the things that we thought could make good libraries and, uh, and, uh, put them up on this, um, on this, uh, GitHub organization, uh, page here. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it might not be a surprise that a lot of the libraries that, uh, we do have available are specific to, uh, what we do at peak, which is, um, uh, building software for the tours and activities industry. Uh, and naturally that involves scheduling uh, availability on calendars. So I've got two libraries. Um, the first that I developed is the one that we are actually using in production. It's, it's li uh, a library around uh, generating date recurrence, um, date, date instances based off of date recurrence rules uh, so that you can, you know, schedule, um, things on your calendar in complex, weird ways that, you know, people have. Um, and we just needed, you know, we needed a way to, to go from some like, you know, small set of rules that like define a schedule and be able to expand that out into concrete instances of time. Right. Uh, so that's, that's one of the libraries, uh, that I wrote there. It's called cocktail. Um, um, I have a similar one, uh, called XCal, which, uh, which is, is another interesting thing to talk about. Uh, and, then, and then we've got a couple of other little small libraries that were just kind of like little tools that we needed for various things. Uh, the most notable is probably Ectodiff that, um, that gives us a way of um, getting, a, getting like a, a, a data structure that describes the changes that you performed after the fact uh, to, to an ecto schema, um, especially in the context of uh, deeply nested ecto schemas using uh, associations, like has many and belongs to associations. Uh, and, that's, and that's been very helpful for us. We, we definitely do use it in production and it is useful. How have you found uh, participating in the open source community in Elixir compared to, I don't know if you did any open source, let's say in Ruby, which it sounds like you had a background in, uh, or if anyone else has comparison open source contributions to share? Uh, well, me personally, I didn't really contribute much to open source other than my own libraries, um, even before Elixir. Um, and, and these libraries that I've got here uh, for Peak are not, you know, not exactly super popular. So 
<laughs> I don't get a lot of the, uh, you know, like I don't, I, there's not a lot of like, you know, action going on there. So I, I don't, ha I don't have a lot of experience with that yet, but I would, I would like to have it. Um, that is changing a little bit with a, a side project that I'm working on where I've actually do have, you know, multiple people from the community involved now. Um, and that's just starting out. So we'll see how that goes. And that would be the work with the, what's it called? Kibo Kit? Yes, that's the, uh, the our, our, our initiative to build Elixir-powered mechanical keyboard firmware. <laughs> yeah, so could you dive into a bit what you've been uh, doing there and what your end goal would be? Because the Kibo Kit, as far as I understand it, is a mechanical keypad powered by Raspberry Pi. And for people who aren't familiar with NERVS, NERVS runs on Linux devices uh, such as the Raspberry Pi. So that's a good target for NERVS. Uh, and the Kibo Kit is fairly, um, a, let's call it a constrained space. It's a small keypad rather than a full keyboard. So I'm very curious what the, what the, both what the project is right now and where you hope to be headed with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, uh, like you said, it's, it's a, it's a small keypad. Um, people also call them macro pads because the intent is that you, uh, you know, it's, it's like a little additional pad next to your keyboard in addition to your primary keyboard that you can assign various macros to and like, you know, have various little functions that you have on your keys uh, that you perform, you know, daily and you want to automate. Um, that's kind of the purpose of, of macro pads. Uh, but we're using this uh, Raspberry Pi powered uh, Kibo um, as kind of like a prototyping, uh, air, a prototyping device for us to see how, you know, how to develop a, a nerves based firmware for, for what could eventually be a full a full-sized keyboard. Um, as far as I know, though, uh, there are no um, full-sized keyboards that are powered by something like a Raspberry Pi. It, it has to, Nerves only targets uh, Linux uh, uh, machines, like embedded devices that run embedded Linux. Um, you can't go all the way down to something like an Arduino, a microcontroller, um, and most mechanical keyboards. Um, unsurprisingly, I think are powered by very small microcontrollers that are very, um, very definitely not powerful enough to, to run Linux and the beam. Um, so this is definitely an experiment. Uh, it's, uh, it's going really well. I think we've, uh, we've got a lot of really great libraries in development and, um, and it's fun to just, uh, play with this thing and see what we can do. Uh, it's got, um, you know, it's got a grid of 12, uh, RGB LEDs on it. We've been playing around a lot with, uh, building out fun animations and stuff you know if you've seen if you've seen some of the fancy mechanical keyboards that you can that you can buy out there they've got you know full full backlight rgb leds that you know animate in all sorts of fancy ways and stuff like that um so that's kind of what we're shooting for the the the, the end goal being that we want to actually design uh you know the the keyboard itself uh you know we we need to design the the pcb itself uh and and get that get that printed and uh and actually you know design a case uh around it um and you know hopefully have that available uh at some point this is a super interesting project um i'm also 
I'm also very interested to see where it goes. But uh, as of today, what could uh, people that are interested do with the Kibo kit and uh, the things you've been working on? From what I see, you have separate libraries for like the Exibo. Uh, feel free to correct the pronunciation there. Uh, and then the AFK library, which seems a little bit more general and for the for the wider mechanical keyboard idea, is that about right? Yeah, that's uh, that's correct. Um, the idea is to use the the Kibo as our staging ground for the libraries that we're developing. Uh, so one of those libraries is called uh, AFK. That is, uh, it's the keyboard state management library because um, it, it it can actually get kind of complex uh, if you actually take a minute to think about how keyboards work and uh, you know how you have to manage like which keys are being held down at which times and which ones get released at which times and um, and then when you throw in the, the the fancier features that we want like for example layer layer keys you hold down a key and it switches the entire keyboard to a different layer um, and things like macros and and uh, other other fancy features like uh, like this feature that we call tap keys, where you can actually have a key, a physical key, act differently depending on whether or not you tapped it versus whether or not you held it. Um, these are all features that come from the wider mechanical keyboarding community, um, but the by far the most popular um, uh, firmware out there. Uh, open source firmware for mechanical keyboards is called QMK, and it's all written in C. Um, and I'm not a C programmer, <laughs> but and, and and therefore uh, it's very difficult for me to understand what's going on in there. And to me, it kind of looks like uh, it's it's like a it's a it's a big you know very large project with many many contributors that has has kind of like gone and sprawled. Um, so it's very hard to contribute to it and understand it. And so. My goal was, uh, well, I'm not a C programmer, and, but I'm a, an Elixir programmer. I can, I can do this in Elixir and maybe in the process also make it a little simpler and easier to contribute and, and be able to build higher level features you know, in a higher level language without having to drop down into C um, to, to do that kind of stuff. Roxio calls themselves career rocket fuel for curious coders. They are some of the most experienced Elixir trainers in the business with over five years of Elixir teaching experience. We're in the midst of a pandemic, but don't let that stop you from continuing to learn. Groxio offers remote Elixir and OTP live training courses with no more than six participants. These short two and a half day sessions give you plenty of keyboard time with your coach, Bruce Tate, co-author of the Programming Phoenix and Designing Elixir Systems with OTP. Groxio also has three extensive Elixir self-study courses available. Whether you want to learn Elixir, OTP, or Phoenix Live View, the self-guided trainings give you the videos, projects, and books you need to make your own breakthroughs. Groxio wants to be your Elixir on-ramp. Subscribe or buy a course today at grox.io. Uh, in that same spirit, is, uh, is this something that like a, a nerves, uh, you know, someone new to nerves could jump into and start uh... Uh, contributing, uh, you know, if not, maybe what are some some starter projects that really help kind of get you ramped up with what NURBS is, what the development process looks like, and you know how, how to get familiar with all that. Yeah, um, well, uh, there are definitely things that you can jump in on on the Zebo uh, firmware, um, which is what we've been developing. Uh, there's there are things that you know someone who's not familiar with NURBS can jump in and start contributing with. I wanted to 
you know, mention a, f a couple of other features that are actually on the, uh, the, the in the Zebo firmware that I that I forgot to mention earlier, which is that uh, it 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 um it runs Phoenix from the device itself, and the USB cable that you use to plug it into your computer with actually uh, you know opens up a a virtual Ethernet device. So, you know, the device is actually connected to your computer as a USB HID gadget, uh, you know, like as keyboards present themselves, um, but it also presents itself as an Ethernet uh, device. So you can SSH to it, you can get into a shell that's running directly on it, you can run a Phoenix web server from it, which we are doing. And so you can use your browser to visit the Phoenix live view interface that we're building for it, and you can you know, change various settings about, uh, about your, your Kibo keypad. You can, you can, uh, configure the animations. You can, you can even preview the animations, uh, in the browser itself. And we've got this, we just, uh, we just finished this last week. It's, uh, it's very interesting. It was a very fun project doing this where we have the animation engine running on the device itself. That's, you know, painting the keys, various colors. Um, and, and, but the but the actual physical LEDs are just an abstraction to that, and we have the Phoenix Live View interface, which is also just an abstraction on top of that. So really, like we have a a common engine that's performing the animations, but it draws both to the physical keyboard and to the Live View page at the same time, and it's and the events are synchronized. That's, that's pretty, nice. Uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I would have never thought about having a, an Ethernet device over USB. So now the next question is, uh, when, when is the Kickstarter going up and how can I sign up for one of these custom PCBs that you'll be printing? <laughs> uh, yeah, good question. Uh, we are definitely still in very early days here. Uh, we're still prototyping the software to make sure it makes sense. Uh, and of course, the uh, PCB is completely not designed yet. I, have not, I do not have a background in electronics. Uh, I don't know how to design PCBs, uh, so there are many tutorials in my future uh, on uh, learning this stuff and figuring out how to design it right, and you know, we're going to need to go through several rounds of prototypes. Uh, that's not to say that I'm not uh, you know, completely new to this scene. I, uh, I, have, you know, I did kind of jump headfirst into the mechanical keyboard rabbit hole um, a little while ago before trying it with Elixir, so I have uh, built several keyboard kits myself. Um, but, but the actual step of designing your own PCB from scratch, that's, that's the next hurdle that I don't really know how to get over. Uh, definitely let us know, because I'll give you my money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it seems like there would be a lot of interesting things to a project like this, even um, looking at, if you're using uh, a Raspberry Pi for a keyboard, you actually have a computer in the keyboard, uh, a full computer in the keyboard, which sort of makes me think of the some Amiga computers I've seen, which are a computer and a keyboard. Um, but also, um, I started wondering, could you use an existing keyboard design and mostly hook up the correct electronics to actually drive an existing design? How feasible would that be? Have you looked into it? Um, yes, uh, actually, uh, um, the, the Kibo is actually not my first attempt at this. Um, I, I did actually build um, an existing PCB design uh, that I found online and got, uh, I, I sent off the, the designs over to a lab in China and got five of them printed because that was the minimum number that you can print. 
Uh, and I, uh, I put together this keyboard uh, kit, like completely from scratch myself. I like got all the, you know, the metal plates laser cut and, and soldered the PCB together and soldered all the switches on it. Um, but I was originally following a guide that uh, used an Arduino uh, microcontroller. Um, so that was my first keyboard. Uh, I put it together with the Arduino microcontroller and it's running the QMK uh, firmware written in C. Um, the second time I had, and of course I had a couple of extra PCBs lying around. Um, so I took the, I took the existing PCB and I did connect a, um, I originally connected a pocket beagle, um, to it from, uh, from BeagleBone. So that's another, that's another development board that I, I would also highly recommend, uh, BeagleBone Black and Pocket Beagle. Uh, they, they also run nerves. Uh, so I, I used one of those. Um, with the existing PCV, of course, you know, like the PCVs were designed for the Arduino, so the the, the pinholes didn't line up. So I, you know, I I hacked it together, um, and and that is also that was my first first ever prototype. Um, that one is also running Elixir and Nerves. Uh, it's not running the Zebo firmware; it's running a different one, um, and it's a little older now. But a lot of the learnings that I did from that one uh, went into the the Zebo firmware. So what you're saying is you have a you have a full working mechanical keyboard uh, with nerves on it. Yes, I do, but uh, it doesn't have the full RGB LED backlight, so I'm sad. Ah, uh, that's no good then. <laughs> um, you're only half as productive without the LEDs going, so that's oh, why yeah. you got that's why you got to take it to the next level with the LEDs. <laughs> Uh, it seems like you might have a lot of options down the road as well. Uh, have you looked at the GRISP2 board? I don't think that's done entirely yet. Or, and then there's also, of course, Lumen, which I tend to mention on every episode, which uh, will build to WebAssembly. And as far as I know, WebAssembly does run on the ESP32, which is a microcontroller. That is very interesting. I will definitely keep my eyes on that. I was not aware that uh, Lumen was targeting uh, targeting embedded hardware, so that's that's very interesting to hear. I um, as far as uh, the GRISP two, yeah, um, we've we've been aware of it for a while. I actually have um, one one of the other community members who's part of this uh, Kibo project. Uh, pre-ordered two of the GRISP2 boards, um, and they were supposed to have been here, you know, six months ago, um, but they've been uh, severely delayed. So we're, we're, still, we're still waiting on those <laughs> to see, uh, you know, what the viability uh, of those boards are. Maybe better to build with something, something that actually exists for now. Um, and in the case of Lumen, uh, the target, the first priority is basically uh, web, WebAssembly for web, but I don't see any reason why uh, the end WebAssembly product wouldn't work on microcontrollers. So changing gears back to the calendar library you were talking about, uh, I've always looked into like Google Calendar and seeing that you can set a calendar event to repeat according to a rule set that can be pretty intricate, and it just figures out when it should place these events on your timeline um, and in your calendar. And the thing I've always thought about a little bit and wondered, how do they do that effectively and efficiently is when you remove or change 
singular events in a repeating one or move one of them. <laughs> it it seems like a terrible headache, and I imagine this is what you've been uh, getting familiar with. Can you speak to that? Yeah, definitely. Uh, like I said, uh, I've built two of these libraries now. Um, although one of them maybe doesn't count as much, but we'll we'll, we'll get back to that. Uh, this uh, this concept of uh, calendars and date recurrence rules and things like that has been around for quite a while now. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's a, an official um, IETF proposal. I've, I've pulled it up here so that I get the numbers right. This is actually RFC 5545. Uh, it's called the iCalendar spec, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's like, you know, a lot, of, a lot of smart people and a lot of smart companies have come together to kind of say, this is how you do it, right? This is the spec. This is how you do calendars with recurring, recurring events. Um, so this spec is huge. Uh, it's a very, very large spec. And, you know, like reading through hundreds of pages of specs is not, you know, not anybody's idea of a fun time, I don't think. Um, and, uh, but, but I did, you know, spend a good amount of time reading the sections on how they define recurrence rules and how they're meant to be interpreted. So the basic idea behind this is that you've got a concept of an event, uh, and that event can have any number of recurrence rules in it, and the, the recurrence rules act as like a set union. Um, and, and then within that event, you can also have any number of exception dates, um, and those exception dates just just like set minus. They just remove that that recur that occurrence from the set, right? So if you got a simple event that's like every Wednesday off into infinity, but then you want to like cancel this one on this one specific Wednesday, you just put that specific date time recurrence into your exception set, um, and then you can also of course add uh, arbitrary dates into the set as well. So that's the basic mechanics that you got there. Um, and, and, but like all the complication really lies in the recurrence rule, uh, uh, construct. Thanks. I figured it had to be something like that, but I've always wondered. One of the few things that I have not enjoyed about working with Elixir is working with dates and date time. Um, I don't think that's unique to Elixir. I think that can be one of the biggest headaches really of programming in general, but in particular, I feel like it always takes me longer than I want it to, to do anything with date or date time. So I'm curious if you ran into like any headaches or gotchas when deving on these calendar libraries. Yes, uh, it is generally a universal uh, thought that date and date time is hard in most programming languages. And, uh, and you know, we at Peak, of course, deal with it a lot. Um, so anytime a bug comes up, around dates or time zones specifically, we know that it is gonna be a hard bug, right? Time zones are one of the hardest things to get right and to, and to figure out, right? Um, but uh, that being said, I honestly think that Elixir may not have gotten it completely right, but Elixir is one of the languages that has, uh, you know, in my opinion, some of the, some of the best date and date time handling out there. Um, it, they, they approached it, you know, they didn't, they didn't approach it like all at once. Uh, like some languages like have to have like a fully fledged date 
time implementation all up front, Elixir like backed off and said, no, we're going to give you some like basic building blocks and it really doesn't do much, you know? So if you need to do something fancier with like time zones and date math and date addition, then you got to go to another library that handles it. Like, and, and, and you know, and for the longest time we had Timex, um, which, you know, is a, is a good library. Um, I dealt with it a lot uh, while building uh, my library cocktail. Um, and I dealt with the performance problems of it a lot. Uh, I opened several issues with the maintainer of Timex, uh, wondering, you know, what's going on with all of this, uh, with all of this slowdown. And and really, you know, the the ultimate answer is just that this is hard, and <laughs> and uh, and dealing with time zones is hard, and and like, uh, you know, adding two date or you know, like adding time to one date time uh, is, is a very hard question to answer, especially if it's like in an in a specific zone because. In, in specific time zones, sometimes don't exist. Sometimes exist twice. Uh, it it gets it gets very complicated and hairy. Um, but uh, but the the library that I've I've written uh, for the recurrence rules uh, it's called Cocktail, um, and it's open source on our uh, on the Peak Travel uh, GitHub organization. Um, it it uh, as far as I know works pretty well. Has good test coverage, and and I'm I'm not sure if they're I mean, I, actually, okay. There is there is a couple. There are a couple of filed bugs, but uh, <laughs> I'll take care of those at some point. Um, but the way it works um, internally is that you you build up your recurrence rule sets that I described earlier, um, and you you put them together into into a, into an event, um, and then from that you can generate an Elixir stream, a, a lazy stream, right? That's that's what it all comes down to. You want you want to set up your rules, you put it together uh, into a data structure and you put that into a, a lazy stream. And then from that stream, uh, you, can, you can take, right? You can take as many instances as you want and you can, you can you know, if you want to say like, give me the next 30 occurrences, you just enum.take 30 out of that stream and, and it gives them to you. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker, I don't want to deal with Kubernetes, I don't want to deal with setting up servers, I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on, so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington, from the Food Fight show, and we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. That's pretty cool. I can definitely relate to the, uh, the date time problem. I was working at a logistics company a few years ago, and we had... Uh, uh, like we were tracking drivers and there were some cases where like a driver on daylight's uh, savings time, like that, that time would drive across the time zone. And so like we would, uh, for whatever reason, you know, 
super edge case, we would negate their time. And it's like implementing the fix for that particular case was just like if statement after if statement after if statement to try to make sure like their time bookkeeping was totally right for that, you know, block of six hours. That was just ridiculous. But now I could totally feel that pain. Yeah, I actually have some advice, I think, to anybody who runs into these kinds of problems. Um, what we ended up doing, uh, you know, as like our, you know, I don't know, third approach uh, to, to this problem was just to remove time zones completely out of the mix. Um, like originally, like some of our legacy systems, right, every daytime instance in the system was a, t a zoned uh, time. It was like this time in Pacific time or this time in central time. Um, and, and you run into all sorts of issues like exactly what you described, right? You, you run into daylight savings times issues, uh, you know, like this time was valid, you know, you know, like this time that was, you know, persisted in the database is a, is a daylight savings time, but you know, it's no longer daylight savings time. You got to take that into account. It gets really hairy and, and really confusing. Uh, very fast. So our, our our last approach when we switched to Elixir and, you know, rewrote a large chunk of our system in Elixir, uh, we said we're taking time zones completely out of the mix. Every single time um, in our system is a naive date time um, until you need the zone. So you, you what you want to do is you want to apply the time zone to your naive time as late in the process as possible, like right when it goes out the API to be displayed to the user or, you know, right when you need it to know whether or not you have to like enforce uh, booking cutoff rules, uh, you know, or something like that. So, but throughout the entire rest of the system, we just store naive date times and that has drastically simplified um, the working with dates and times for us. Yeah, I'll definitely plus one. Though. That's that's kind of the route we went down. Everything was being, after the fact, we started everything as UTC, and then it was just presentation layer. How do you convert it to the time zone that makes sense for the viewer of that uh, of that data? So yeah, definitely, definitely a good way to go. Right, and actually, just a small detail there. Um, that's one of the things that I think, you know, Elixir did so well. Elixir has a naive date time uh, construct. And, and that is not the same as a UTC daytime, right? A naive daytime is, you know, like five o'clock on Wednesday. It's not five o'clock on Wednesday in UTC. It's, it's just a abstract concept of a time anywhere. Um, and that's, that's what we deal with it, rather than like having actual like UTC daytimes everywhere and then converting. It's more of, uh, it's more of having a naive construct of a daytime and, applying a time zone to it after the fact. I definitely know I've seen my fair share of time-based bugs. The most traditional probably being a cron job that was running nightly. And uh, at a certain point, the client gets in touch and like, yeah, the sync didn't go this, this evening. Something's wrong. And you check, no, that time just never occurred. <laughs> the actual hour did not exist. <laughs> Because it was set to go at maybe two in the morning. Yeah, um, that, that's true. Two a.m. sometimes doesn't exist. <laughs> perfect. So all, all this talk uh, about time is giving me a thousand yard stare. Uh, definitely, like a little PTSD from all the the bugs and stuff introduced. That I don't know. Um, Elixir one dot eleven is introducing even more uh, things to the calendar class and date time class. We finally get thrift time, so that's pretty cool. Uh, but I, there's something interesting about sort of, like you said, Chris, delaying 
building out the full library, sort of like giving it time to breathe. What does the community need? What does it, what does it actually mean to be part of the, uh, I guess the standard library, uh, which has been pretty cool. I just want to punctuate this uh, conversation about time with one of the keynotes I saw at Codebeam Stockholm in 2019, which was uh, why time is evil in distributed systems, which I found uh, enlightening at the time. And uh, it seems appropriate for now. We'll link that in the show notes. It's funny because the conclusion, like Chris, that you're recommending and Alex, that you're saying you've also come to, right? Which is that, you know, daytime is naive and you can apply time zone as you did later is exactly the conversation that my team at, on, at GitHub is having about, uh, you know, time zones being applied to a product that we're deving on. And like the very last thing I did work-wise before joining this call was like thumbs up the resolved discussion thread that came to this exact conclusion. So yeah, definitely with you. Uh, rewinding a bit to running uh, uh, Elixir in production at Peak, how have your experiences been with running uh, uh, Elixir in production? Do you guys do like hot code upgrades? Do you target uh, VMs? Do you target uh, you know containers? You know, how what does that story look like? If you can divulge details there. Yeah. Um, all in all, I, our our move to Elixir in production. Um, was was pretty successful, uh, if, especially from like a performance perspective. Uh, we definitely got to massively cut down on the number of uh, you know instant application instances we had to run uh, in Ruby compared to Elixir. And Elixir is just you know a lot more efficient. Um, uh, so from yeah, so from a performance perspective, uh, it, it's been really great. Um, we do have. We are targeting containers. We're running in Kubernetes. We are not doing uh, hot code uh, up, updating. And uh, running Elixir applications inside of containers, inside of like a container orchestration system like that, uh, does, you know, sometimes, you know, people feel that that kind of goes against uh, the, the, the ideas behind the beam. It goes against some of the concepts. Um, and and we felt that, and we've we felt that you know that kind of like push and pull, and and had to kind of work through that, like getting uh, getting all of our uh, Elixir application instances talking to each other, uh, you know, clustering them together so that they form a uh, form a node cluster um, is kind of annoying and difficult, um, and making sure making sure that that cluster is stable. Uh, we've had problems in the past where we we wanted to rely on. Uh, we wanted to rely on, uh, you know, cluster global uh, states, cluster global processes uh, for, for the purposes of, you know, global locking and, and things like that. And, and it, it works like, you know, most of the time, but then we get like a bad deploy and the cluster never reforms correctly. And now there's two schedulers running instead of one. Um, across the whole cluster, and, and that causes disasters. So it has been a bit of a struggle, uh, you know, getting getting that stuff worked out. Uh, but in the end, we just kind of we we just reach for some of the more standard tools. Like if you need something uh, that's you know like an, a like you know a, 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 a singleton like a global something or other, then okay, we can just use Redis or we can use po uh, Postgres or something like that, and, and that works for us. Um, you know, so maybe that's sad that we're not, you know, leveraging some of the, you know, fun capabilities of the beam, but, uh, but it definitely is a lot more reliable uh, going this direction. Um, but uh, other than that, um, you know, one of the things that I think just like 
is one of the best properties of the beam itself is just the, uh, the, the way the scheduling works, uh, the, the internal scheduling, right? You know, it can, uh, we can have, in, in, in our Ruby applications, if we had, you know, somebody triggers something in our system that was just a little too much for it, you know, we've got a lot of issues where like people will try to like massively reschedule a three year long calendar or something like that. And then it takes our system down. Right. You know, cause, cause Ruby, when, when one piece of, of Ruby gets overloaded, it kind of like affects the entire system. It, it, you know, like you start dropping all other requests and there's too much garbage collection going on and, and things like that. Elixir just has been able to handle things like that so much better. And that's because of the, you know, the property of the beam that, everything it's it's the the fair scheduler that allows all processes a fair amount of time so you don't you can't have one request or one part of the system you know go completely haywire and take down the rest of it it's like you know if if the system's overloaded then the entire system's overloaded um which which is which is really nice a quick follow up to that for um uh, for the tools for for creating the uh, the cluster in, in Kubernetes. Are you using Swarm and libcluster, I'm guessing, or Horde? Which one? Uh, we're using, yeah, we're using libcluster, uh, libcluster. For, the, for the clustering uh, aspect of it. Um, I, uh, I, I was, um, we, we are in Kubernetes, but we, we didn't decide to use the, the Kubernetes libcluster uh, behavior. We wanted to do it uh, through DNS, and at the time, the DNS behavior, uh, the DNS implementation didn't exist, so I was actually the one that wrote the DNS uh, libcluster behavior and contributed that. Um, it's changed a lot since the last time I looked at it, but <laughs> uh, that, was, that was what we wanted and needed at the time. Because uh, we, we're not exclusively in Kubernetes, or rather, I mean, we are in production, but we also run the entire stack uh, like locally on dev machines, um, and that's using Docker Compose. So we needed a, we needed a mechanism that works in both places. Um, so the libcluster DNS uh, mechanism is, is is pretty good for that. Um, we were using Swarm at one time too. On top of that, but I don't. Uh, we're not using it anymore. We don't really have a need for it. Um, we just we just needed the nodes to cluster together so that a couple of a couple of things throughout the system, uh, you know, had access to the cluster. When it comes to when it comes to things like um, the hot code reloading or hot updates. Uh, I seem to find that most people aren't using it because it does add significant significant overhead for just making sure that you're doing perfect, uh, well-behaving updates. I haven't tried it. I've never heard of... I haven't spoken to many people that have tried it. Um, so I, I think the normal case and like the 90% case, the 99% case is that people can just use Elixir and Phoenix and all that just as normal, um, a pretty normal runtime. Running it in Docker is fine. Uh, there's nothing particularly strange about it, uh, but you can do a bunch of interesting things. And as you say, uh, there are some advantages you can have from clustering up and letting things talk to one another, but you don't even have to. Uh, yeah, just uh, we should chat sometime. I have a system that runs with hot code upgrades in production, and uh, we de we started deploying some with like regular blue green start stop. It is so less, you know, the stress level is like on a different level. Having to manage, uh, you know, the state, the shape of my data when upgrading a gen server that has like clients interfacing with it is. Uh, 
a different set of problems. It is cool. Um, and I think we get a lot of value out of it. I think for the system that we use it for, we sort of need it to never go down. Um, but it is, uh, it comes with a different set of problems. Yeah. It's a unique feature, which doesn't things that most systems and languages can't, uh, or couldn't really do safely. Uh, and Elixir and the beam and Erlang allows us to do it. But it comes with a set of problems, I can imagine. We should have you on the show sometime. I'd love to be on. I think that would make a great blog post, actually, kind of like a hot take, you know, what I hate about hot code upgrades. Because it's definitely on the list of, like, shiny Elixir features that people just kind of rattle off when they're talking about how great it is. But, uh, yeah, I feel like it kind of falls into one of two camps. Lars, like you said, do you really need it? And then, Stephen, like you said, if you do need it, it introduces a whole host of considerations that you know, you're going to have to deal with. And I think it's a topic that doesn't really get talked about a lot beyond the like, oh, cool thing that Elixir can do. So someone should totally write that and then we could maybe have them on the show and talk all about it. I'm, I'm doing this at work right now. So I'll let you guys know in a few weeks how miserably awesome. I have failed or how <laughs> awesomely I've succeeded. <laughs> I'm sure you'll succeed awesomely, but have so many learnings for us. For sure. All right, so we are coming to the end of our time together. So why don't we move it over to picks? If anyone has any recommendations, fun things to share, could be Elixir related, could be programming related, could be something totally else. And uh, we'll go down the list here. We'll start with Steven. So I have a coding one and then a non-coding one. So uh, I've sort of been having a bit of an existential crisis. Do I hate mocking? Am I like an anti-mock person? Uh, I just sort of feel like the, maybe the way that I'm doing it is not right. I know Alex wrote a really great blog post about database-less um, you know, repos or integrating, integrating without actually hitting the database, which is kind of interesting and made me think a lot about some things. Uh, blog post by James Shore, um, testing without mocks was really good. Sort of a cross between a, a blog post and a wiki. Very beefy, if you know his writing. Um, yeah, I'm sort of like having that uh, that discussion in my head. Uh, so that's that's my pick. Go check that out, and then tweet at me. Let me know what you think. Underscore Stephen Nunez. Let me know uh, if I'm a total idiot for not liking mocks, or if uh, I'm right and you want to take up arms against the mockists. Uh, my other pick. I this is gonna be kind of basic, but Hamilton. So I watched Hamilton. Uh, and I really, really enjoyed it. It's very cool. Uh, I then realized that I went to a terrible school and know nothing about American history or, you know, other reasons. Uh, so my subsequent follow-up was a combination of watching uh, Crash Course U.S. History on YouTube, which is amazing, and then the John Adams HBO series, which is also really good. America. Thanks for those. Uh, how about you, Lars? So I want to recommend a podcast that mostly helped me when I was starting my own business, but I think is very relevant to, um, to people right now because it's about slowing down. Uh, at the start, it claimed to be a productivity podcast and to some extent it is. Uh, it's gone a little wider in uh, later seasons, um, but it's very much about intentional work and slowing down to ha make sure your ideas are have room to breathe and that you actually think through what you're doing, doing the right things rather than all the things, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, so I think, uh, I really recommend it. Uh, Jocelyn Ling K. Gly, uh, is the creator. Uh, so her slowly podcast, strong recommend. 
Thank you for those. Yeah, I'm excited to check that out. How about you, Chris? Do you have any picks for us? Yeah, so we didn't uh, touch on this topic uh, during during this session, but uh, one thing that I'm still very interested in uh, in Elixir is property testing. Uh, I find the uh, concept very interesting, and I have done some property testing both uh, in you know my uh, libraries and in, uh, in you know for for Peak. Um, and what really got me started on it was this talk at ElixirConf 2018 um, about how to pick properties um, for property-based testing. Um, and I, I really recommend that talk. Uh, it was it was very uh, it was a very fun talk to to, to watch, and uh, and it, it got me thinking about how to do property testing well and, and is, is let me, uh, you know, experiment with that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'll actually plus one year pick. Uh, Michael Stalker, who gave that talk, is awesome, super smart guy. I think great speaker, great teacher. He's also one of the contributors to Elixir School, which is a free open source online Elixir curriculum. And he and I teamed up last year to do some workshops at ElixirConf. And he built, of course, all of this excellent property-based testing content and lessons. And I hadn't done anything with property-based testing before having a chance to work with him. And I learned a ton from him. So if you haven't seen this talk, definitely check it out. Let's see. Do I have any picks? I have the opposite of picks, which is a request for picks. Um, I received a birthday present recently that I have no idea what to do with. It is from my dad. It is a stand mixer. So like big mixing, you know, for baking attached to a bowl. But uh, it's like an industrial grade, like this thing belongs in like a commercial bakery. It has horsepower. It's like refurbished. I don't know where he got into his head that this is something that I would actually need to use. Uh, so I would like to receive if anyone, you know, is into this kind of thing, easy baking recipes that somebody that isn't necessarily making a wedding cake could do with their uh, enormous stand mixer that they could also use to, I don't know, power a small car or perhaps a golf cart. So hit me up on Twitter with your easy baking recipes, SM underscore DeBenedetto. Oh, come on. You're a software developer. Sourdough <laughs> bread. I don't know. That seems like a lot. You can't find yeast anywhere too, because everyone's doing their quarantine baking. So it's always that's the point. The Sourdough store. yeast. It's wild. You don't need you yeast. You can just make it. Yeah, that's true. I have heard that. Uh, thank you so much, Chris. That was awesome. I actually can't believe this is, you mentioned this was the first time you had done maybe a programming podcast and uh, yeah, that was great. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot. Yeah. Thanks a lot for the invite. Thanks a lot for having me. It's, it was a very good experience. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.